Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals. This content is not intended to malign or disparage any organization, group, or individual. Hello and welcome to True Crime Dailies, the sidebar taking you inside the courtrooms and trials of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We're recording this on Monday, December 6, 2021. Today, we're joined by New York City-based criminal defense attorney Kenneth Belkin, who regularly appears on news channels across the dial. He's also a secret rock star. Prior to becoming an attorney, Ken worked in New York City restaurants and played in various punk rock bands that toured the United States, and now he wears a three-piece suit and appears most days in court. Welcome, Ken. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. Um, There's lots to cover in the news today uh, revolving around high-profile trials. So if if you don't mind, let's just jump right in. And the first one that uh, made news over the weekend is the really sad case of Ethan Crumbly. Crumbly is the 15-year-old who allegedly took a gun from his parents' uh, bedroom to school and killed four uh, young folks and injured seven. He's been charged with murder and terrorism. He's also being charged as an adult, and he's pleaded not guilty. Um, James and Jennifer Crumbly, his parents, were also charged with involuntary manslaughter They've also pled not guilty. Let's just give you a quick rundown of the facts. Crumbly's parents bought a 9mm handgun for their son on Black Friday just a week or so ago, November 26th, the day after Thanksgiving, allegedly keeping it, and here's the shocker, in an unlocked case in their bedroom. On Monday the 29th, a teacher sees Ethan searching for ammunition on his cell phone in class, The teacher contacts the mother, and no further action is taken that day. And apparently, and these are some of the disturbing facts that are coming to light that may give us some insight as to why the parents are now being criminally involved. The mom allegedly texted Ethan, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. By Tuesday the 30th, a teacher sees violent drawings by Ethan featuring guns and bullets and body uh, blood and the words blood everywhere, the thoughts won't stop, help me. Really disturbing. That teacher then notifies a counselor, uh, a dean, and Ethan's removed to class. His parents come in later that day, and uh, they're told to have Ethan in counseling within 48 hours. Now, the parents reportedly never tell the school that he has access to a gun, and they refuse to take him out of class for the rest of the day. And 
because he had no previous infractions, I guess, with the school, he's allowed to return to class. And that was a tragic mistake because within three hours, Ethan has allegedly taken the gun from his locker and starts shooting and again killing four students. Um, teachers and six students were injured. Um, the mother reportedly texted Ethan after hearing about the on the news about the shooting, Ethan, don't do it. The dad calls 911 reporting that his gun has gone missing and he may he believes his son may be the shooter. Uh, and this is all taking place in what's uh, Oxford High School of Oxford, Oxford Township, which is 30 miles north of Detroit. Uh, now, the latest that's happened is that involuntary manslaughter charges have been filed against the parents as of Friday. The parents go missing. They're arrested in Detroit over the weekend in some sort of studio or commercial building. And uh, to their defense, their attorney says that they didn't intend to flee, but re were relocating for their own personal safety. One last interesting uh, bit of evidence here is apparently the Oakland County prosecutor, Karen McDonald, said that they have left open the possibility Monday that school official, officials could also face charges. So there's a lot to unpack pack here. Ken, please just start us off by your, your initial thoughts on all of this. I mean, my initial thoughts are clearly we have a societal interest in curbing school shootings and we should be doing whatever we can to catch the, these, these children at the earliest inception of signs that they might go down that road. But let's be real, where does causality end here? I mean, right. maybe we should prosecute the parents of every school shooter for having conceived the school shooter. I mean, how far back, when does it end? When do we finally say, okay, he made the decision to do this, not the yeah. parents. He did. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, cause I agree with you, but it, whenever we have these tragic shootings and it, 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 it's far too often and it's far too horrible that we live in a society where kids going to school have to worry about this. And I agree with you putting aside gun control and all of that other kind of stuff. One thing that we do hear often after these types of tragic things take place is where are the parents? Why weren't the parents more involved? Why didn't the parents do something? How did they not know that their, their son or daughter was going through this kind of emotional, mental turmoil? But you make an excellent point. Okay, if we're going to hold parents responsible, does that step into the realm of criminal responsibility? Yeah, I mean, look, certainly they are civilly liable. They left a, a gun unlocked and no one's saying they shouldn't face consequences. They made some you know, serious errors in judgment themselves. They shouldn't have kept this gun in an unlocked area where a child yeah. could have access to it. But, you know, it is encouraging to at least see that in the misguided attempt to prosecute the parents, they're also taking another misguided attempt at prosecuting uh, teachers in the school. Because really, let's be honest about it, teachers often spend more time with children than parents do with their children. So where's their responsibility also if we're going to hold the parents accountable? Exactly. And you talk about how civil liability is definitely on the table. Explain to folks, how, what's the difference between the civil and, and extending it to criminal? In other words, what are, what, are, what are prosecutors looking for before they say this is, this is something that should be about a lawsuit or no, 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 we believe now a crime has taken place? Look, certainly... The, there's cause here for a civil lawsuit, meaning the, there was loss of life here, there, there's wrongful death, and, and those are 
cases that we as a society have given rise to civil tort claims for through a long history of case law. And it's in some statutorily uh, set, but they can pursue those claims against the parents for being negligent and not locking up that gun. And unfortunately, it is unfortunate because nothing can bring these children back who died in the school shooting. Uh, and the only thing we can do in a civil case is provide you know, financial compensation, which really pales in comparison when you're looking at a parent who just lost a child. Yeah. Yeah. That is what we can do in this situation. I don't know that putting the parents in, in a cage for the rest of their days is really gonna make a difference on school shootings or really punish the true perpetrator of the school shooting, which is the student that did yeah. this. Yeah, but it, it does pose an interesting question too, because usually in a criminal case, they're looking for some sort of gross negligence, right? That you had a responsibility to somehow get involved because you knew that something tragic was going to take place and you not getting involved or not taking uh, reasonable steps to prevent that creates this kind of gross, therefore criminal negligence. What about those text messages from the mom where she's kind of making light of the fact that, hey, just don't get caught and, you know, not bringing the kid out of school. I mean, here's some stuff. This is this is kind of one of those, you know, sorry to use the pun here, but poster child. Go go for it. Messages might be get getting taken out of context. Do you think the mom was like, LOL, I'm not mad at you for doing a school shooting? Right. I mean, we have, we'd have bigger problems if that right. is the case. Right. And, and you may be absolutely right. And I'm sure that's what her defense attorneys are going to say is, listen, this is just a, a mother trying to kind of calm her son down. But I guess my point is it seems like the parents were on notice that there's a problem. I mean, it's, listen, the kid uh, now two days in a row has made either really threatening remarks or is drawing these very disturbing pictures. I imagine that's just the tip of the iceberg as to what they may have been witnessing at home. And so this, you know, I agree with you. I don't know if this is the right case for it or not, but it's going to be interesting to see as facts unfold if this is a case where parents should have taken a more active role and certainly done something to try to mitigate what he was going to do, at the very least remove him from school and get him involved in counseling that very day. Yeah, and I think it speaks to a broader way of dealing with these situations. I think as a society, you know, we're starting to feel exasperated with the news yeah. of every day, another school shooting. And we can't, you know, we're probably as a society looking for creative solutions to this problem. Because so right. far, nothing we've tried, or maybe we haven't tried the right things, just nothing appears to have worked thus far to curb these incidents. Uh, yeah. COVID being the only example. I think COVID was the first time in years we didn't have a school shooting for a period of six months. And that's why, to your point, I think so many of the facts of this case are disturbing because it does look like there could have been steps to, to, to take on the parents' part. How about first starting out with, with well, you know, I'm not going to get into the wrongs of right of even buying him the gun to begin with. But how about you keep it locked up, right? I mean, it's the smallest step that can be taken to make sure that a deadly weapon is locked up. How about when you realize that he's having some troubles, you get him to someplace safe and have someone talk to him immediately. How about you, we, again, I'm only going off of the news reports, but it, it just seems like there were steps, there were moments that they could have done something that might've sent this kid on a different tra trajectory and that didn't happen. And Josh, you know what you sound like right now? Huh? 
a plaintiff's attorney on a civil <laughs> court. You might that's be absolutely right. That's the case right there. Yeah. And it's a yeah. strong case in civil yeah. court. Yeah. And they're going to have a much more difficult uphill battle in a criminal court, as you point out. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, they also have to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt in criminal court, right? right. So they're going to have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the parents were responsible for the deaths of these innocent students. And right. I don't know that you can prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Because you like know? you point out, there's another person here who made their own independent choices and has free will. And that's the person who committed this heinous crime. Uh, does that extend that 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 mens rea to the parents that they should have done something to stop it? And it's it, going to be a, also it's going to be a challenge in the civil case as well, because typically someone's criminal action cuts off, you know, the, the liability in a civil case. Like I have a case right now. This is an interesting one in Manhattan. I'll, I'll go real quick on it. Where a girl was at a party illegally uh, in, in a housing project and someone threw a liquid off of the building and you know she got really bad chemical burns from this liquid and we went after the city and the city is all about hey you can't hold this liable this was a third party's criminal act but you know we're still trying to hold them liable we'll, <laughs> well good luck with that all right uh skipping over to um new york and manhattan federal court and we have the c case of Ghislaine maxwell 59 year old british socialite uh, she was the associate and former girlfriend, or who really knows the extent of everything, of Jeffrey Epstein. And here's what's being reported so far. Maxwell, once dated the financier, is accused of acting as Epstein's chief enabler, recruiting and grooming young girls for him to abuse. This is all according to the Associated Press. The charges stem uh, against her stem from the allegations of four women who say she and Epstein victimized them as teens from 1994 to 2004. So already we're talking about a, a, a large distance in time from when charges are being brought and when these alleged acts took place. Authorities charged Maxwell in July of 2020, arresting her after tracking her down to of this now notorious $1 million New Hampshire estate where she had been holed up during the coronavirus pandemic. She's being held in custody in Brooklyn since July 2020, and um, she faces six counts in her federal trial, which relate to accusations that she either facilitated the sexual exploitation of girls uh, uh, for her longtime companion, and um, Epstein was, uh, for her longtime companion, Epstein. Now, we know Epstein was arrested in July of 2019 on these same kind of sex trafficking charges, and he took his own life a month later in Manhattan jail, which there was no end to the conspiracy theories uh, surrounding the, the circumstances of his death. And already this trial has caused some controversy with the huge names that are being attached to Epstein's circle of acquaintances, namely former Presidents Clinton and Trump and Pr Prince Andrew. So jump right in, Ken. What are, what are your thoughts on this case? Because I know you've got an interesting take on it. I, I mean, look, I really, this one's fun for me because I really go down the conspiracy rabbit hole on this one. I love it. Like, I don't go down that rabbit hole very often these days as I'm too old for that noise. But th this one really, really smacks of something out of the Cold War spy novels. You know, <laughs> Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, they clearly, in my opinion, were running some sort of honeypot operation where they were getting compromising videos and photos on powerful people 
uh, for some purpose, whether it be for an intelligence organization or an organized crime syndicate, but they were clearly doing this with an agenda. And it's interesting. All the, I, all the loose ends have been tied up. Jeffrey Epstein's gone, and it looks like Ghislaine Maxwell might spend, you know, the rest of her years rotting in a cage. I love it. I don't go down that rabbit hole much either, but I say I, I will tell you, you make a compelling kind of argument there. If if this were one of those cases where there was uh, more people pulling the strings than we're aware of, it would certainly uh, seem like it would play itself out in this kind of a, a circumstance with, you know, high profile. I mean, we're talking about people in the most upper echelon of power being involved in this guy's circle. And and the suicide, uh, quote unquote, uh, it also, you know, it, 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 here you had we talked about this before here. You had probably the most high profile inmate uh, in the country at that time going to go to trial on the most high profile case involving all of this public intrigue. And what was it? The security guards happened to, you know, both both miss their shift and the camera happens to be off. It just adds to your kind of uh, uh, respectful paranoia about what surrounds this whole case. Yeah, and the most bizarre thing, at one point, he was cellmates with a guy who ran a, a, a drug syndicate, who worked for a drug syndicate, and this guy's responsibility was killing people for money. And <laughs> this was his cellmate, who they later found a cell phone on him. But look, I'm not trying to go down the rabbit hole or and take choose between the blue or the red pill here. This is a fascinating trial, and I would love it if maybe federal court allowed a camera in there to yeah. capture what's going on. Yeah, it so is unfortunate. It's not all coming through in the reports. No, and it's it's strangely not being reported like you would think. With with like I said, all the kind of intrigue following this, I don't know why we're not hearing more about it on kind of the nightly news circuit. Yeah, I, I mean, especially when, when Rittenhouse was being drilled into our heads 24-7 yeah. for two weeks. Yeah. You know, to me, seems like the objectively more important case. But maybe it, we don't want to shine a light on the, those things. Who knows? Who knows? Well, from one kind of legal question I had from you, and I've heard uh, her attorneys talk about this, and I wanted to get your thoughts, but they make the point that had Epstein not killed himself and he were the one on trial we might not even be hearing from galane and if we were hearing from galane it would be as a prosecution witness that they would have flipped her somehow given her some sort of uh, deal so that she could testify against him and the only fact that she's now the heavy quote unquote in this whole thing and on trial for everything that he did is because he's no longer around and they need some head on the chopping block. Do you think there's any value to those arguments and do those carry the day in court? Yeah, I, I think that is a super good point. I think that in, in her best light, she would be a cooperating witness for the prosecution. She would be in t so useful, but instead they have to like stretch this, the, the legal theory in which they prosecute her as a conspiracy, you know, conspiracy yeah. is a lovely crime. We, we sort of take it for granted in modern society, but it's a very, very new sort of legal tool. It's a new doctrinal tool. And it was used, really invented to go after organized crime, but expanded to include anyone who takes a step in furtherance of committing a crime is a conspirator. I don't know that she was a conspirator. Maybe she was just a freak who liked to ride on his plane while he did his thing. 
Right. And explain that a little bit to people, too, that that to be a conspirator, you don't even have to be aware of everybody involved or even the extent to which everyone is involved or even really quite understand the overall conspiracy, but just to be playing your role in that conspiracy. Yes, you have to take an overt step in furtherance of the commission of that crime to which they're alleging that you're conspiring to commit. Right. So it's look. Did, was she involved? Did she maybe call a girl up and say, hey, come over? Yes. To what extent she knew about other things going on, we don't really know. Um, the evidence is very interesting. They put on the pilot so far to testify, and he testified to seeing, you know, a lot of famous people on the plane, which made for some, you know, great headlines. I don't know what it did for the prosecution's case legally. No one's trying to prove whether or not Bill Clinton was on his plane upwards of 20 times or not. That's not really in question. But we are trying to prove that Ghislaine Maxwell is guilty of the crimes that she's charged. So they put you know, this other woman on the stand the other day and she had some very interesting things to say. And they put another witness on today where you know, she testified that she was above age during all the sexual encounters. So I'm not sure what they're, they're, they're doing here. It seems like they're trying to muddy the waters maybe with character evidence. Yeah. Well, and then I've also heard uh, reports that, I mean, first of all, we talked about it at the beginning, that these are, uh, you know, some of these folks, uh, the, the young ladies who are making the accusations came out many, many years later. There's also a huge uh, victims fund that has been put together that is a certainly a financial incentive that I'm sure the defense is going to exploit to say, hey, th- these are people looking to uh, make a profit. And I'm, I'm not saying that's my belief on this, but it's certainly going to be their argument and position that. Well, it's a valid point. They, yeah. To, to, to go into that more if you could. It's a valid point. The reality is, is that these people have civil suits like we were discussing with the other case they have civil suits pending uh for some of these sex crimes and they will be financially compensated if those suits result in mr epstein being found liable now if ghislaine maxwell gets a conviction for a conspiracy to commit those crimes that conviction can be used as evidence of liability in the civil case and it makes the civil case that much stronger and it makes them that much more likely to get a huge payday yeah and, and that's, that's a, yeah and that's that's defense attorney cross-examination 101 right is that you want the jurors to believe that, they, that this person is taking the stand and saying the things that they're saying for every other reason other than it's the truth yeah or, or to at least show that they there is a motive there potentially to fabricate because yeah. they can profit from it yeah Okay, switching gears quite dramatically. Now we're back to uh, Minnesota, and this is the case of Kim Potter. She is the white police officer who shot and killed a black motorist, Duante Wright, uh, during a routine traffic stop. And Potter claims she meant to use her taser, not her gun. So here's the quick facts on this case. Kim Potter is a 49-year-old woman. She resigned from the Brooklyn Center Police Department two days after Wright's death. And she was a 26-year veteran police officer and a training officer, which is important because you don't get to that position without knowing kind of what you're doing. And she's been charged with first-degree manslaughter and second-degree manslaughter. 
Potter uh, has said that she intends to testify. Openings, opening statements are scheduled for Wednesday, the December 8th, and ju- a jury was selected last Friday. And just because that's how we do things never, uh, nowadays, I'll give you the racial breakdown of the folks involved. It was nine white, one black, two Asian uh, jurors on the sitting jury and two white alternates. Okay, so going back to the events of April 11th, 2021, uh, we're in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. And Dante Wright, a 20-year-old uh, young man, is, is uh, stopped in a traffic stop for expired tags. And this, this was interesting to me because that gets reported a lot in the news that he had expired tags because it's seen as a kind of trivial reason to pull someone over and admittedly it is but then officers determine while conducting the stop that he does have an outstanding arrest warrant which dramatically changes then the 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 circumstances of of this stop right so as officers are trying to handcuff um, him uh, Wright attempts to flee and body cam footage shows Potter uh, firing a gun now Potter says that she was saying, I have a taser, I'll tase you, taser, 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 grabbed the wrong gun and shot him. She claims that she grabbed the wrong weapon on accident, a single shot is fired, and Wright is dead at the scene. Um, And just so we understand the kind of historical context, this all occurred during the Derek Chauvin murder trial of George Floyd, which was just 10 miles away from the scene of that. Um, And Another kind of point to, to, to make for folks is that I know that a lot of officers, they carry both a sidearm, a weapon, and a, um, a holstered taser, which operates very similarly to a taser in that it's, you grab it by the handle and you pull a trigger with your trigger finger. So it's, it's at least I can wrap my head around how initially those two things might feel different in somebody's hand. But really what this case is going to come down to is the difference between a mistake and criminal negligence. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, Ken. I mean, definitely a mistake was made here. Uh, it's not every day that someone gets put, pulled over for having an air freshener hanging from their rear view mirror. And that ends up being the final mistake in their life that they made. But that's what happened here. And you really got to put yourself in the shoes of Officer Potter, a 20 plus year veteran of the force. She pulls someone over, over, for an air freshener of inexplicable of all reasons is that, and determines that there's a warrant out for this guy. He has a pending gun case, all right? So this guy is facing felony charges on a gun and has stopped showing up to court, presumably. So they've issued a warrant for his arrest. So law enforcement's actively engaged in the search for the man that she's pulled over. And what does he do? He doesn't comply. He tries to get away. So put yourself in her shoes for a second. She might've been scared. Her adrenaline was pumping. Her heart was probably beating over 180 times per minute. And in the heat of it, left hand, right hand, who can say what hand, she grabbed the wrong instrument and pulled the trigger. And yeah. that, that's what happened. And I don't think everything is a crime. Every mistake doesn't have to result in someone going to jail or their, their career being ruined or whatever. Of course, this man lost his life. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to consider her, her level of service to the community. And we have to consider whether or not this is something that should be properly prosecuted. Maybe yeah. there's another way to go about it. Maybe a civil lawsuit. 
maybe a settlement with the family. Maybe this officer who made a mistake doesn't have to rot in a cage. Yeah, yeah. It, it really is a tragedy any way you look at it because I, I do agree with you. I do, I do believe this was a mistake. I don't think, I, I, I think that this poor woman has beat herself up over this. And then you've got the family of this young man who really at that day did nothing wrong, certainly nothing to deserve uh, uh, being killed. Um, and it, it, what's funny to me about all of this is that, you know, this is all being seen through the prism of kind of a re um, new scrutiny of policing and how it's done and that we don't want officers turning routine traffic stops into something that ends up somebody being dead. And that's absolutely true. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But here she apparently was trying to do things that were less than lethal in that she wanted to use a taser. If we believe her testimony that she intended to pull a taser, which is what we would hope an officer would do in that situation so that if he does run or does fight, he only ends up being tased and he lives to tell the tale instead of it ending up this way. So I just thought that the horrible irony of the whole thing it shouldn't, be, um, shouldn't be neglected as well. But what's going to be interesting, at least from the trial perspective and the, the lawyer's perspective, is how are they going to get from a mistake, like we both kind of say this clearly is, into that, again, that criminal negligence that, sorry, everybody makes mistakes, but you made a mistake so egregious that it can't be forgiven. And to your point, therefore, we need to put you in a cage. How do you think a, a prosecution is going to go about doing that? Well, I think they're, they're going to go about doing it by, number one, highly politicizing the environment in which this case is tried, which yeah. has clearly happened. I mean, the attorney general for the state of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, he was on record screaming she should be charged with murder. We need to amplify the charges. You know, I don't even think that this would have resulted in a prosecution if it wasn't for politicians, you know, dragging criminal cases into the news so they could fundraise for their next campaign off of it. Uh, you know, it's highly inappropriate. Elected officials should not comment about pending criminal cases. When you're charged with a crime, and I'm going on a rant here, I'm sorry. Yeah, tell us. No, preach. <laughs> you're entitled to a presumption of innocence. It's a constitutional right that we really take for granted more often than we should. And state actors, elected officials should not be commenting on the innocent of or innocence or guilt of someone who's been charged. They weren't there. They're not witnesses. They're just someone who got the most votes in the last election for dog catcher. <laughs> and it really does a disservice to our criminal justice system, too, because then you know that regardless of the results, there are folks who are going to be either happy or upset just based purely on political motives rather than. I agree with you. There used to be a, a time where politicians felt that this was a third rail sort of issue for them to comment on any ongoing criminal case. And there was kind of a respect to the criminal justice system and allow it to work it itself out, allow the jurors to do their jobs and the judges and the prosecutors. But when you start getting involved and you start, like you said, putting putting all of this in your campaign mailers, it really creates problems and it, and it really uh, does a disservice to kind of what we should believe as an institution, the criminal justice system, we should all be able to believe in that. Yeah, it's supposed to be fair. And, and, and let's be clear, these politicians, they do damage to the criminal justice system in all of its applications, you know, the idea of the fairness of it, but they also do damage to, to the players in the system. 
people who show up for jury duty. They yeah. shouldn't be worried about a riot in Kenosha, Wisconsin, if they don't do what the mob says they should do. They're the ones with the jury. Last case, and this is the fun one. Uh, Jesse Smollett in Chicago. Uh, just in case you've been hiding under a rock, here's the quick uh, uh, facts behind this case. Smollett's facing six counts of felony disorderly conduct after allegedly staging a, hate, a hoax hate crime attack on himself and then lying to police about it. Uh, apparently, uh, the actor who is ba- black and gay originally told police that he's walking home early on January 29th, 2019, I think it was around two o'clock in the morning in Chicago in the middle of winter when two masked men approached him, made racist and homophobic insults, beat him and looped a noose around his neck before fleeing. He said the assailants, at least one of them who he described as white, told him this was MAGA country, a reference to President Trump's campaign slogan, Make America Great Again. Uh, Several weeks later, authorities alleged that Smollett had paid two black friends $3,500, not pretty cheap if you ask me, to help him stage the attack because he was unhappy with his salary as an actor on Empire. Uh, Originally, charges were dropped by Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. However, a judge in August appointed Dan Webb, a former U.S. attorney, to look into why charges were originally dropped. And that's where things got really interesting. Webb uh, um, also investigated whether phone calls that the state's attorney, Kim Fox, had with Smollett's relatives and a former aide, a first lady, Michelle Obama, unduly influenced the decision to drop the charges. Fox has recused herself from the case, but continued to weigh in. A lot to unravel there. Go ahead and start us off, Ken. I mean, he paid $3,500. I mean, Josh, you get what you pay for, right? <laughs> By the way, he's yeah. so crazy. He, they, the, the, the guys he hired, one of them testified that he originally wanted them to pour gasoline on him. Justice Smollett, this is how he resolves his salary disputes with the Empire TV series. He's yeah. going to have two guys pour gasoline on him. By the way, to their credit, the, the, the people who helped him perpetrate this fraud, they were like, well, we're not exactly comfortable pouring gasoline on you. Yeah. Something could go wrong here. Yeah. But, you know, the, the funny thing is I read that he took the stand today. And yeah. you can only imagine how that conversation went with your attorney. His attorney being, Jesse, absolutely not. You cannot take the stand. This is going to be disastrous. Uh, You paid two guys to pour bleach and throw a noose around you. They've got you on surveillance doing the dress rehearsals of it, which, you know, he's a professional. So he wanted to get (laughs) your course rehearsal. But him taking the stand, and I could just see him in all his arrogance. Yeah. Like, no, no, I'm the great Jesse Smollett. I got this. Haven't you seen Empire? I'm fantastic. Yeah. You know, this is unbelievable. Well, he now, did. That, that Go ahead. Go ahead. Said, I clearly am no fan of Jesse Smollett, although I did watch the first and second season of Empire. I thought it was riveting, but I am no fan of his conduct here. And I think it's pretty clear that he did this. I mean, they basically prove in this case beyond a reasonable doubt. So I'm no fan of him, but. He's got the same constitutional rights that you and I have, Josh. Yeah, yeah. And there's something known as the Fifth Amendment, and there's a prohibition against what's known as double jeopardy. You can't be prosecuted for the same crime twice. And that really is what's going on here. He had a deal on a case. 
The charges were dismissed, right or wrong, whether you agree with that decision or not. He was prosecuted, the charges were dismissed, and he did some community service, you know, sweeping leaves in the street or whatever. Who knows? Uh, hopefully not at two in the morning again, Jesse, please. <laughs> but he, he was prosecuted. Now they're bringing these charges again. I don't think that's proper, and it probably should have been dismissed, and it's probably going to be an issue that should he be convicted at this trial will be taken up on appeal. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I don't think that even if he is convicted here, it's the end of this for quite some time because you're right. If his, it, it, I'm sure that was litigated beforehand, be, before this ever went to trial, and a judge somewhere made a ruling, to your point, that somehow double jeopardy doesn't apply here and an appellate court is going to need to weigh in on this because you're absolutely right. He, for, 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 for good or not, he accepted some sort of sweetheart deal. I don't think. I think you're right. I don't think it was dismissed outright. And he did some sort of. Uh, um, he paid some sort of uh, time for that, right? I mean, I think you're right. I think it was some sort of community, yeah, community service. service. How do you get? How do you turn around and say we need a redo because we just don't like the backdoor shenanigans that were taking place to give him this sweetheart deal? And by the way, there's backdoor shenanigans, if you want to call it that, on every case. I tell all my yeah. clients. 90% of what happens on your case, it's not happening in the courtroom. It's going to be happening yeah. outside the courtroom. So in yeah. those conversations, those intense conversations that you have with prosecutors, where hopefully you don't end up hating each other before you hang up. But that, that's the reality. And if they cut him a deal and he was prosecuted and that's the deal, they've got to be held to that deal. They can't because the mob, you know, and whether you agree with the mob or not, we can't just let the mob run the show. We yeah. have rule of law in this country, not rule of mob. Yeah. And it is one of those cases to the point that you made earlier where it really took on a life of its own. And you had politicians weighing in from the get go. I mean, from the beginning, the 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 theater of the whole thing that he created with the the noose and the MAGA hats. And this is MAGA country. I, I you know, I I'm not. I like to believe that the stuff that I'm being told for the most part being reported in the news is is the truth. And maybe I'm naive to feel that way. But I remember thinking to myself, I lived in Chicago for, for four years. You, you live on the East Coast. Who is out at two o'clock in the morning in Chicago in the middle of winter carrying around a noose looking to harass somebody in the middle of Chicago you're acting like you're a, a, a MAGA, you know, Trump supporter. It just the whole thing seemed so perfectly wrong. And Jesse Smollett, you're a TV <laughs> star, okay? Right. You're going out for a Subway sandwich at 2 <laughs> right. in the morning? Right. Come on, man. No one's yeah. buying that. Yeah. But I do agree with you that with these celebrity clients, all they think to themselves is just put a microphone in front of me. Put a microphone in front of me and I'm going to solve this whole problem. That's what he did on that interview. I don't know if you remember. He did a very high-profile interview before it all came out that this was a scam. Uh, and there were tears and it was genuine. And he knows how to play the role. And I'm sure if we were watching that testimony today, he'd, he'd be up there, you know, giving it his Emmy-winning Emmy performance. And by the way, Josh, he is a great actor. Yeah. Just not a good director. <laughs> Well put. Well put. First, it was his first time directing. Give him a break. Uh, all right. Well, that is our show for this week. Thank you, Ken, so much. Ken, 
Uh, where can people find out more about you? Uh, you can find me on the internet at belkinlaw.com, B-E-L-K-I-N-L-A-W.com. And if you want to contact me, you can contact me there. You can also find me at Twitter at Kenneth underscore Belkin. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, please tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the Sidebar.